really was an amazing experience to see God work at uh, SEMP last week. We, uh, many of us had the privilege of talking to a number of different people on the streets and, uh, and even the, the excitement of being able to watch them make that most important decision that they'll ever make to give their life to Christ. And You'll be hearing more about that. We even have uh, some video clips of people that we talked to that shared back with us the experience that they had where they actually gave their life to Christ. And so at some point, we'll bring that back before you. I found out uh, just in the middle of this week that we didn't have a speaker for this morning. Evidently, the person lined up uh, wasn't able to make it. And uh, it was really, I really felt God uh, leading me to share what, uh, is what I'm going to be sharing this morning. I know that many of us from time to time uh, experience difficulties in life. And our church has, has experienced some dark days even recently with the passing on of Ryan and uh, the struggling of Jordan and the struggling of Ryan uh, Carlson and just a lot of things that are happening within our body. And as I was just before the Lord in prayer, I felt like God was saying, our people need kudos. And I don't know if you know what that word means, but uh, kudos really is a word that means praise and affirmation for a job well done. That you've, you've, you've been in there, you've persevered, you've been faithful, and sometimes we just need somebody to come alongside of us and give us a pat on the back and say, good job. And uh, if you're here this morning and you just really need a kudos, I have some kudos here that I'd be willing to give, give away. Is there anybody that would like a kudos this morning? Just raise your hand. Be bold. All right, we got one back there. <laughs> anybody else? Here, Rick, you want to pass those out? Here we go. Chris. You want to pass those off? Thanks. Just raise your hand if you want a kudos. We'll pass those out. And you might want to ask permission from your mom or your daddy before you eat those. All right. It feels good to be told that you've done a good job. We all need that. And I think that we respond a lot better, especially in our work environments, when the person that we're working for recognizes the good job that we've done. Oh, by the way, this is a reward. It's supposed to be a reward, Rick, for people that actually sit up in front. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> oh, thank you. All right. <laughs> hey, my favorite, peanut butter. I would like to uh, just share with you this morning a little story as we introduce this topic from uh, one of my favorite publications, Chicken Soup for the Soul. And uh, this is a story that talks about a group of uh, students at a church that understood the value of encouragement. It's called When Kevin Won. If you had to choose one word to describe Kevin, it might have been slow. He didn't learn his ABCs as fast as the other kids. He never came in first in the schoolyard races. However, Kevin had a special rapport with people. His smile was brighter than the sun in June. His heart was bigger than the mountain sky. Kevin's enthusiasm for life was quite contagious. So when he discovered that the pastor at his, at his church, Randy, was putting together a boys' basketball team, his mother could only answer, Yes, you may join. Basketball became the center of Kevin's life. At practice, he worked so hard you'd have thought he was preparing for the NBA. He liked to stand in a certain spot near the free throw line and shoot baskets. Patiently, he stood there throwing ball after ball after ball until finally it would swish through the hoop. 
Look at me, coach, he'd yell at Randy, jumping up and down, his face just glowing with the thrill of it all. The day before their first game, Coach Randy gave each player a bright red jersey. Kevin's eyes absolutely turned to stars as he saw his number 12. He scrambled himself into the sleeves and scarcely ever took it off again. One Sunday morning, the sermon was interrupted by Kevin's excited voice. Look, Coach! And he lifted his gray wool sweater to reveal his beautiful red jersey to God and everyone else at church that day. Kevin and his whole team truly loved basketball, but just loving the game doesn't help you win. More balls fell out of the basket than into it, and the boys lost every game that season by very large margins, except one. The night it snowed and the other team couldn't make it to the game. (laughs) At the end of the season, the boys played in the church league tournament. As the last place team, they drew the unfortunate spot of playing against the first place team, the tall, undefeated first place team. The game went pretty much as expected, and near the middle of the fourth quarter, Kevin's team stood nearly 30 points behind. At that point, one of Kevin's teammates called a timeout. And as he came to the side, Randy couldn't imagine why the timeout had been called. Coach said the boy, this is our last game. And I know that Kevin has played in every game, but he's never made a basket. And I think we should let Kevin make a basket. And with the game completely out of reach, the idea seemed pretty reasonable. So plans were made. Every time Kevin's team had the ball, Kevin was to stand in a special spot near the free throw line, and they would give him the ball. Kevin, Kevin skipped extra high as he went back onto the court. His first shot bounced around and missed. Number 17 from the other team swiped the ball, and took it down to the other end, scoring two more points. As soon as Kevin's team had the ball again, they passed it to Kevin, who obediently stood in his place, but he missed again. And this pattern continued a few more times until number 17 grew wise. He grabbed one of the rebounds, and instead of running off down the court, he threw the ball to Kevin, who shot and missed again. Soon, all the players were circling Kevin, throwing the ball to him, and clapping for him. It took the spectators just a little longer to figure out what was happening, but little by little, people started to stand up and clap their hands, and the entire gymnasium thundered with clapping and hollering, chanting, Kevin! Kevin! And Kevin just kept shooting. (laughs) Coach Randy realized the game must be over. He looked up at the clock, which was frozen with 46 seconds left. The referees stood by the scoring table, cheering and clapping like everyone else, The whole world stopped waiting and wanting for Kevin. Finally, after what seemed like an infinite amount of tries, the ball took one miraculous bounce and went in. Kevin's arms shot high into the air, and he shouted, I won! I won! (laughs) The clock ticked off the last few seconds, and the first place team remained undefeated, but on that evening everyone left the game feeling truly like a winner. I'm convinced that more than ever, we all need to experience this kind of kudos or or encouragement. We need to be reminded that people around us truly do care, that they love us, that they recognize our hard work. 
We need to know that they support us, that they're willing to offer us assistance in our time of need, that they're willing to offer us reassurance, compassion, friendship, to be willing to share our grief, as I know many of you have with the Crinkies over these past uh, few days, to empathize with our loneliness, depression, and despair. And sometimes to come alongside and to urge us on, to motivate us to keep on, to help revitalize our relationship with God. In general, we all need encouragement. I had the privilege a couple weeks ago to uh, speak up at Trout Lake Camp to a group of about 300 junior hires. And one of the evenings we talked about how heroes lift our spirits and encourage us, people that we really look up to. And that night a, a little girl that was there came up to me and she had written a note of encouragement. And I want to share what she wrote to you this morning because it really encouraged me. said, Phil, I want to thank you for bringing me to God this week. I was born into a Catholic family and then converted to a Lutheran. And you're the first pastor that got through to me. I think you're even better than Billy Graham. (laughs) And she just simply closes with saying, keep on preaching. And when I read this note, I was teared up. And it wasn't because she said I was better than Billy Graham. (laughs) It was because she shared that I had been an instrument used of God to bring her to Him. And she had experienced that relationship with God. And I was encouraged. Can you think of times when other people have done something to encourage you? Something intentional? A note at a time of need, just the right time? An act of kindness where somebody went way out of their way to help serve you in your time of need. Maybe it was just that they were willing to give you a shoulder to cry on. Or maybe they loved you so much they were willing to come and confront you when you began to stray and in love bring you back into the fold. See, we all need kudos. We all need encouragement. But you know what else? We all need to be encouragers. If we all sat around waiting for somebody else to just encourage us, nobody would be out encouraging. So it goes both ways. We need to be encouragers. And I think really that to a large degree is what uh, the author of Hebrews is talking about in our text today. And if you have your Bibles, let's take a look at Hebrews chapter 10. We'll begin in verse 19. Hebrews chapter 10. In my Bible, this is titled, subtitled, A Call to Persevere. Hebrews 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most high, most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened to us, for us, through the curtain, that is, his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, verse 22, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, and having our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess. For he who promised is faithful. 
And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Let's pray. Father, I pray that as we look into your word this morning, that each one of us would be both challenged but also deeply encouraged. That each one of us would be able to take some time this morning to consider carefully how we can spur one another on toward love and good deeds. And it's to that end that we pray. Amen. I want to just share a little bit of the context of this text. The author was writing to the Jewish converts, many of whom were beginning to stumble in their faith. And they were being tempted to go back to the old Jewish way of doing things. The old covenant. They were beginning to neglect the new covenant. And in the first ten chapters of Hebrews, the author really lays down the doctrinal foundation. Lots of solid truth. Really the focus is on the supremacy of Jesus Christ in all of our lives. And where we pick up the text here today, he begins to transition from the doctrine now to how this really applies to our lives. He moves from the argument to the implementation in our lives. The writer is trying to challenge us. He's calling us to become people who live by faith, who live by faith, who put their faith into action, rather than depending on the rituals or the rules of the Old Covenant. It follows that if what was communicated in these first ten chapters is truly the truth, that each one of us who profess to believe should be willing to live consistent with each of these teachings. I want to start by just taking a quick look at verses 19 and 20. We're called to come confidently into this holy of holies, this most high place. Why? Not because of anything we've done but because of what God has done, because what Jesus has done on our behalf. He shed his blood as a sacrifice for us who are believers. At the time that Jesus Christ died on the cross for us, you know that the earth earth shook, and the veil in the temple was, was split. The curtain was torn. And that curtain was symbolic. It was symbolic of the fact that previously, the high priest, once a year, would go into the the innermost sanctuary, the Holy of Holies. And he would offer sacrifice for the atonement, for the, to, to uh, receive the forgiveness of sins for his people. And symbolically, at the time that Christ died on the cross for us, as the veil was split, we are ushered in to an, an invitation to come directly and even boldly before the throne of God. To enter this new covenant or to live in a new and living way. Do you know that back then, the Christians were not necessarily called Christians, they were called the way. Because it was so different and distinct from anything else that they had ever experienced, it was called the way. And they were ushered into this new way of experiencing God. And we're invited, likewise, to enter boldly, confidently, into this new relationship. Not because of what anything, anything that we have done, but because we know what Jesus has done and we believe with all of our hearts in what he has done and we know that that has set the table for you and I to come directly into the presence of God. But as we look at verses 22 to 24, there are three exhortations that are given to us. 
The first exhortation is an invitation for us to draw near to God. However, with that exhortation comes four conditions. There's four things that you and I need to do if we truly want to be close to God, if we want to experience God, if we want to be ushered into His presence. Let's look at the text here. In verse 22 it says, Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let's draw near to God. Four things. The first thing is this. We need to have a sincere heart. And as I looked at this, what it really is talking about is that we're not pretending. We're not going through the motions. It's not an act. This is real. And as we come into the presence of God, we muster up with all sincerity of heart a desire to come into His presence. We're not divided in spirit. We're of one mind and one spirit. And we come wholly into His presence. It's our desire to give sincere allegiance to God as we seek after Him. How? With all of our heart. We live in a very sarcastic skeptical society. I was just talking the other day with a young man named Pat Byrne, who's uh, with us this morning. In fact, he'll be teaching our senior hires. Pat used to attend this church, and uh, when he was in high school, God used Grace Church to deeply encourage him and motivate him. And now Pat is uh, teaching English in Japan, and he's back for a month, and he's going to be helping out in our student ministries while, while he's back here for the month of August. And he was just sharing with me that, the, that one of the key dis- distinctiveness between the Japanese culture and the American culture is that the Japanese people tend to be just gut-level sincere. They're just very, very sincere people. And that's the kind of sincerity that God wants us to have as we come before Him. To draw near to God, we need to have a sincere heart. Secondly, he says, we need to have the full assurance of our faith. Remembering again that our faith is not about anything that we've done. Our faith is not in ourselves. Our faith, the object of our faith, is Jesus Christ. We need to have full assurance that we're wholly and completely convinced that we're totally trusting. There's no hesitation. I loved some of the songs that we sang today. I think God knew what he was doing as he guided Paul in in selecting those songs to just trust to trust. It was a central theme of a lot of what we heard this morning. Could it be that one of the reasons that we have not fully experienced God to the degree that He would desire for us to experience Him individually and even as a church, could it be that we're still not totally trusting? That we haven't completely, completely yielded our lives to Him? and put our complete and total hope, faith, trust in Him. You see, I believe that if we lack this full assurance of our faith, that we'll struggle, we'll really struggle to trust God. And he says that if if we don't want to draw near to God, we have to place our faith fully in Him. And I believe that to the extent that we learn to trust God will be the extent to which we experience the fullness of God in our lives. This week, one of the things that we learned was a a text, and I think it was from 1 Timothy, where it says that, I pray that you would share your faith 
so that you will experience the full joy, the full knowledge of Jesus Christ. And that as we go out on that limb and we share our faith, that's when we really begin to see God work in our lives. And I think that's one of the things John was talking about, that as he got out there on the edge this week, he experienced God in a way that he had never experienced Him before. It has to do with trust. I want to share an illustration that happened to us last week at Semp. It was uh, one of the most poignant, powerful demonstrations of God's power that I've ever seen. It was the last night of Semp, and the president and founder of Semp, of Sun Life Ministries, Dan Spader, was asked to come and lead in a word of prayer, a prayer of dedication that the students would go back home and be missionaries for the cause of Christ. And in the middle of his prayer, by the way, just to, to let you know what was happening outside, it was thundering. There was a pretty good storm that was happening in Wheaton. And I think there was also a pretty good storm happening up here at the same time, from what I've been told. Well, it was probably about uh, 9 o'clock, and Dan Spader was up with the microphone, and he was praying, and he said this. He said, God, we recognize your power and might. Exactly at the minute that he said might, there was the most just thunderous thunder outside, huge lightning, and all of a sudden, all the lights in the entire facility went dead. The sound system went off, and we're all just sitting there in awe. And there was about a five-second pause, and then all of a sudden, 1,300 students just started screaming at the top of their lungs, because they knew that they had just experienced the power of God. Now, what was amazing about it wasn't just that, but that then God led the worship leaders to get up onto the stage, and there was just absolute quiet. And with no mic, with no lights, with no PowerPoint, nothing, no high-tech stuff at all, in a very quiet voice, the worship leader began to sing. And all 1,300 people for a half hour praised God in a way I've never experienced. I mean, I'm not just into emotional experiences, and I think that sometimes we look for that. But somehow God chose to visit that upon us that night. Honestly, I had tingles from my head to my toes. I was just so caught up in this praise before the Lord. It was an amazing, amazing experience. You know why I think God chose to visit us that way? Because I think he knew that there was 1,300 people here that were totally and completely seeking him sincerely, and they completely and totally believed in him with all of their heart. They had full assurance of their faith. And God allowed us to have just a little taste of what heaven's going to be like someday. The third condition he lays down here, if we want to truly experience God and come into his presence, is that we need to have our hearts sprinkled from a guilty conscience, from a sense of guilt. You know why? Because we've experienced forgiveness through Christ's once-for-all sacrifice and atonement of our sins. He's promised that as we ask for forgiveness, we're going to receive it. And if we want to come into the presence of God, we need to first ask for forgiveness. We need to come before him with pure hearts and clean hearts if we truly want to be in his presence. And then lastly, the writer challenges us to have our bodies washed with water as we draw near to God. There's been uh, lots of theological arguments over what this really is talking about. Some people have said that it, it, it would be inconsistent to assume that he's talking about baptism here, although a lot of people believe it is a reference to baptism. 
The reason that people think it would be inconsistent is that the first three conditions had to do with an internal experience. And then if all of a sudden there was this external thing that you had to do if you were going to experience God, it wouldn't be consistent. For example, would it be consistent if the condition came right out and said you had to be baptized if you were going to experience the presence of God? On the other hand, it could be argued that baptism is such an important ordinance for the church And God wants all of his disciples to follow him in obedience into the waters of baptism. And that if one is resisting, not willing to submit themselves in that way, to publicly identify themselves with Christ, they may not fully experience this intimacy with God for lack of their own obedience. I think the best interpretation of this would be to relate it to the washing of water as a result of our hearts being cleansed. As it says in Ephesians 5.26, where it talks about Jesus Christ cleansing the church by the washing of water with the Word. I think what it refers to here is the outward way that we live. It's already talked about how our hearts need to be sprinkled from a guilty conscience so that our hearts are clean before the Lord. Now I think what it's saying is that our bodies need to be washed and cleansed and purified so that the way that we live outwardly is consistent with our beliefs internally. That we're living pure lives and holy lives. If we want to experience God, four things. First thing, we need to have a sincere heart, not divided. We need to have full assurance of our faith, not trusting hesitantly or a little bit. We need to have our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. No guilt. And lastly, we need to have our bodies washed with water. We're both clean internally, but also pure externally. How? We're purified as we expose ourselves to the Word of God. I'm kind of concerned here because I think that if we blow it on this first exhortation, to draw near to God, if we, if we fail at this first level, if, we, if, if any one of those four conditions break down in our own personal lives, we will not be able to follow through on the next two exhortations. Because the next exhortation has to do with persevering in our faith, holding fast to that which we believe, the hope that we profess. And the last exhortation has to do with considering how we can spur one another on. Listen. If you and I are not being faithful in our own personal devotion to God, if we are not coming into His presence, if we are not drawing near to God with a sincere heart, we will not, we will not be able to persevere. We will not hold fast to the hope that we profess. Nor will we have the stuff to be able to encourage the body. Because our cup's not even going to be full enough to overflow into the lives of other people. That's why I think he puts that exhortation as the very first one. That we need to personally be sure that we are preparing ourselves as we draw near to God. The second exhortation is that we need to hold fast or unswervingly, it says, to the hope that we profess. What is the hope that we profess? Well, really, the hope is this, that God has promised a number of things, and we are hoping, we believe with all of our hearts, that God's going to come good with His promises. The expositor's commentary puts it like this, Hope vividly anticipates that God will fulfill His promises in a particular way. Christians can hold fast to this hope in this way because behind it is a God to whom they have 
full confidence in. God is thoroughly to be relied upon. When he makes a promise, the promise will infallibly be kept. For how many of us do we continue to hold on to that that promise of the blessed appearance of Jesus Christ? Do we begin to doubt? Do we begin to get skeptical and think, well, yeah, well, hundreds of years ago they thought Jesus was coming back. At the time of this writing, back in between 60 and 70, A.D., they thought Jesus was going to be returning. One of the reasons that God wants us to have that perspective is that if we continually hold on to that hope, it gives us the motivation to live each day as if it were our last. So that we, we are ready, if Jesus Christ were to return today, to hold fast. Even at the time of the writing of this text, the world was experiencing a lot of shifting of values. And the Jewish converts were beginning to lose hold of their hope. And the exhortation came, hold fast, hold unswervingly to the hope that you profess. I think it's important to note here that it says, the hope that you profess, which really means the hope that you talk about. How many of us share that hope with other people? How many of us even realize the fact that people around us are without that hope? And maybe we're the only people that God will ever place into their lives that could usher them into that hope, that great hope. It was so neat to hear some of the stories. One of our leaders, the very first day we went out witnessing in Chicago, got invited into this little apartment of a lady who was just so ready by the Lord. She had actually been praying that God would send her somebody to talk to her about the Lord. And one of our leaders, Christy, had a chance to just usher her into the kingdom of God. And this lady was in tears, and there was big hugs, and she, just, she was amazed that God loved her enough to send Christy to her door that day to usher her into the kingdom of God. We have hope, and we need to share that hope with others. We need to hang on to the hope that we have. We need to persevere. It's easy for us, and I'm guilty of this as much as as any of us, to walk by sight and not by faith. In 2 Corinthians 5, 7, Paul says, We live by faith, not by sight. Our faith cannot be just in things seen, but in the unseen things of God the promises that God has made in His Word. See, I think that sometimes, especially in the culture that we live in today, there's a lot of seeking after the signs and wonders of God. The manifestations of God. It's just like doubting Thomas. We've got to put our finger into the hole to know that God is really who He says He is. And I think that that shows us our lack of faith. Our faith needs to remain constant even when We're not seeing everything come together in our personal lives the way we'd like them to. Even then, everything's not happening the way we'd like to see it happen within our church body. We need to remain true to the calling and the hope that God has given us. I think the way we handle our money tells a lot about the degree of our faith. What would happen if we all lost our source of income this week? Would we be able to continue to hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess? What would happen if the stock market continues 
the direction that it headed Thursday and Friday this week. And the bottom fell out of the market, and all of our investments went up in smoke. Would we be able to continue to hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess? Even when we experience persecution, even when we experience crises like we have in recent days at Grace, we're told to hold on to this hope that we profess. Even when the giving at our church last year was lower than we had hoped, we need to hold on to the hope. Is God finished with Grace Church Roseville? I don't think so. Are our best days in front of us? I believe so. I press on. I hold on to the hope. Because he who promised is faithful. Do I hear an amen? amen. All right. Verse 23. It's not enough just to hold on to the hope. It says that we need to profess that hope that we have in Jesus Christ. We need to tell others about him. The degree to which we are willing to step out of our comfort zone and profess, again, will be the degree to which we experience God, and it's a test of our faith. Last week, some of our students had their faith tested. One of the afternoons, they, they gave us the entire afternoon off, and they said, what we want you to do is get together as groups, and we want you to write letters to four unsaved friends or relatives. And so our students got together, they took this very seriously. They, most of them came to SEMP already with somebody in, in mind that they were praying for during the week, they took the time that day to write these letters. Some of them wrote letters back to their unsaved parents. Some of them wrote letters to their best friends, to students that they knew at school, that they had friendships with. And then they came back and they had to deal with the fact that there was a letter that was already in the mail and they'd already received it. And what are we going to do? One of our, one of our leaders, Michelle, has a, a father who's, who's not a believer. And she sent this letter to him and... When she saw him, when she got back, he said, I just want you to know, I am who I am. I'm never going to change. I don't want you ever to bring this subject up again, period. Now, in that circumstance, it was, would have been very easy for Michelle to lose hope. But I really believe that God has given her a burden that goes beyond just that one circumstance. And I think she's going to continue to hold unswervingly to the hope that she professes. And I believe that as she's faithful and as she lives out Christ before her dad, that there will come a day where his heart is softened. The last exhortation that we're given in this text is that we need to consider how we can spur one another on toward love and good deeds. And really the, the, the literal Greek translation of the word spur, paroxymus, would be to irritate or exasperate. I doubt that's really what he was saying, though, because if you put that in there, it would be this. Consider how we can irritate and exasperate each other on toward love and good deeds. Okay, what he's doing is he's using a negative term for con contrast and impact. What it means is this, that we should consider how we can provoke one another or move each other toward a desired response, toward love and good deeds. What I think is important about this is that he begins by saying, consider. In other words, think carefully. Take some time to really evaluate how you, as a member of the body of Christ here at Grace Church Roseville, 
can spur other people on toward love and good deeds. Maybe it's through a word of admonition, spoken in love, obviously. Maybe God is going to lay a burden on you that somebody in our body needs to be encouraged. They need to experience love. Maybe you just need to get up today when we're done and go over to somebody and give them a hug and just tell them you love them. As I was thinking about this this morning and the need to offer kudos and encouragement to each other, I was reminded of something that we do in our ministry. If you got your bulletins this morning, you find a little green sheet in the bulletin. It's simply entitled an encouragement sheet. And what we uh, have done this morning is we put these in the bulletins, and also there should be some buckets with pencils by a number of the rows. If you don't have something to write with, we'd like to ask you to pass those uh, buckets around and you can get something to write with. And we're going to take uh, time in a few minutes to actually, this morning, make a priority out of encouraging each other through the written word. I'd like you to just think right now about who God would want to lead you to encourage. Somebody within the body here at Grace. Maybe it's Pastor Galen. Who knows? Somebody that God would lay on your heart to give a word of encouragement to. And you don't necessarily have to identify yourself. You can Otherwise, it can just be an anonymous uh, letter that you give them. Uh, there's a couple ways you can do this. One would be to just, little, to just hand it to them personally today if you see them here. The other would be that we could just tape them to the back wall, and over the next couple of weeks as people come in, they could look on there and see if there's an encouragement sheet for them. I think this is a neat thing that we've, that we've done. Hebrews 10.24 says, Spur one another on toward love and good deeds. And I think that the more things that we can do to encourage each other, to help them to see how God is, is working in their lives and how we see God working in their lives can be a real encouragement to them. The exhortation to spur one another on toward love and good deeds continues in verse 25 where there's a warning to not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. You see, even back then, there were people that were beginning to have this argument that I can experience God on my own. I don't need to go to the synagogue to, to worship. I can experience God on my own. Eugene Peterson's message reads this. Meet together and all the more as you see the big day approaching. The big day is the return of Christ, the day of reckoning when all of us will have to give account for, our, for ourselves before God. There's a couple points that, that, being, that are being stressed in this verse. The first is this that we need close and regular fellowship if we're going to persevere, if we're going to continue to hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess. And one of the best ways that we can spur one another on is just to be together on a regular basis, to fellowship with each other, to sharpen each other, to admonish one another in love. We couldn't survive spiritually. In fact, if you look at the New Testament, the, the over overwhelming evidence would, would support the fact that we are called to be part of a body. That, that this whole idea of individual Christianity is nowhere supported in Scripture. We need each other. We need to fellowship with the saints in order to stay on the right track. Three exhortations that we've looked at today. The first is this. To draw near to God, which has to do with our personal devotion to Him. And there's four conditions 
We need to come with a sincere heart, truly seeking. We need to have our hearts fully assured of our faith, not wavering, totally trusting. Our hearts need to be sprinkled from a guilty conscience. We need to confess our sin. And lastly, we need to have our bodies washed and purified. We need to walk in purity. The second admonition is that we're called to hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess because God is faithful and he will do what he has promised. We need to keep our eyes on Jesus, walk by faith, not by sight. And then lastly, we're called to spur one another on toward love and good deeds. To carefully consider how we can encourage each other in the body of Christ. I'm going to uh, just share with you a letter that I received last week. Um, I didn't know this was happening, but uh, one of our leaders, Dave Tilma, uh, asked the students that were at SEMP to write letters of encouragement to me. And so when we got back on Monday night, I got about 25 letters. And I took those home and I just bawled my eyes out for about an hour and a half as I read these letters. And I just want to share one of these letters to you as an example of how to encourage. Dear Phil, we've been given the opportunity to write a few letters of encouragement. So I have decided to seize it. I'm reminded of a video that we saw here at SEMP. It was with people talking about how our lives show Jesus to others. When I thought about it, I thought of you and how you, you have shown me Jesus, who Jesus is. I know that there are times when you feel like giving up and doing something easier, more for your own age. <laughs> but despite all of the rough times, you haven't given up. You've remained faithful to what God has called you to do. This shows me that Jesus is faithful, no matter what I do. You have an unending passion for us, your kids at Grace. Your life overflows with love. You have a heart for the lost and a desire to reach them. Your attitude abounds with compassion, and your actions are as a servant. All of these things you have taught me and shown me what Jesus is. Your life is a reflection of our Savior. I know that you save your letters in an e-file, encouragement file. And if you're ever feeling like giving up, believe me, I know what it feels like. Remember something. Carpe diem. Seize the day. The time God has given us can be used for so much. Many times I feel as though it's my worst enemy, but I'm working on it being my greatest ally. Never forget the gifts you have been given. God will complete what he started in you. I love you tons. Thanks for showing me who Jesus is. Sean McCowan. We're done this morning, but I hope that you will be moved, as I have been, to be more of an encourager, to take the opportunity to write a letter to somebody in our church, to speak a word of encouragement to somebody, even today before we leave. Let's pray.
Father, I want to thank you so much for the privilege that we have to be your children and to be part of your body. And Father, I pray that you would teach us how to spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Lord, I pray that by your Spirit, that you would create a movement in our church where we would go way out of our way to uplift and encourage and support and edify one another. Thank you for the privilege that we've had to be in your presence today, Lord. And as we leave, help us to remember the exhortations that you've given us in this text today and to put it into practice in our own lives. In your name we pray. Amen. I just want to give a reminder that as you're leaving, there will be an opportunity for you to give an offering for the Eagles Wings Ministry. Thanks for worshiping with us today and have a great week.